Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unk, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unk podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unk, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's episode was inspired by some conversation that followed a recent episode of the podcast Radio Lab. That episode was titled The Right Stuff, and it was about a parabolic flight that was part of a project called Mission Astro Access. It's a project that's working toward disability inclusion in space. We will be talking about that some more at the end of the episode, but I will say up front that I highly recommend that episode of Radiolab. What we are going to talk about today is a group of deaf men who have become known as the Gallaudet 11. They were subjects in NASA's research into the human body in the early years of the space program. Most of what has been written about them in more recent years followed the 2017 opening of an exhibit about them at Gallaudet University. It was titled Deaf Difference Plus Space Survival, and there have been ongoing efforts since that exhibit opened to try to make this story better known. A heads up, though, that a lot of this episode is about experiments involving human subjects. These are folks who consented to being involved in these in this research, but still, that's the whole purpose of what was happening. Also, some of the language that was used in that research, which still shows up in research today, uh, which we're going to mention very briefly, it comes across as demeaning. And so, just a heads up on that. 
So the Gallaudet 11 were recruited for this research due to differences in their inner ears. So we're going to start with those basics. The inner ear is made up of two labyrinths, an outer bony labyrinth and an inner membranous labyrinth. Each of these labyrinths has three sections. The bony labyrinth includes the vestibule, the semicircular canals, and the cochlea. The membranous labyrinth includes the semicircular ducts, the otolith organs, and the cochlear duct. All of this is lined with a fluid, either endolymph or paralymph, depending on exactly where in this system it is. In humans and most other mammals, the inner ear is connected to the sense of hearing and the sense of balance. Membranes and sensory cells and tiny little hairs pass along information from vibrations in the case of sound or from gravity and movement in the case of equilibrium and balance. More specifically, the otolith organs are also called the utricle and saccule, and they detect the influence of gravity, while the semicircular canals detect the position of the head. Sometimes, these organs are all grouped together as the vestibular system, and they work together to help maintain the body's postural equilibrium. In other words, all the little detections and movements that help keep a person's body stable. With one exception, the men from Gallaudet College, now Gallaudet University, who were recruited for this research, all had meningitis as children. Meningitis is an inflammation of the membranes around the spinal cord, and sometimes the infection can spread beyond the spinal cord and damage other parts of the body. This was especially true before we had antibiotics that could treat bacterial meningitis. Damage to a person's cochlea can cause deafness, and damage to a person's vestibular system can affect their balance and their coordination. In all of these men, meningitis had damaged both their cochlea and their vestibular system. So sometimes they're described as having been recruited because they were deaf, but really the vestibular system was what was central to this research. The one person from this group who did not become deaf as a result of meningitis was Robert Greenman. He was actually one of NASA's earliest subjects for this research, before the rest of the Gallaudet 11 were recruited. He had mastoiditis at the age of 12, and he had two ear surgeries later on. This damaged his cochlea and his vestibular system, although based on some of his test results, it seemed like he might still have some function in his otolith organs. In 1958, he offered to have his otolith organs surgically removed to ensure that there was no remaining function that might affect the results of the tests. This research was a joint project between NASA and the Navy, overseen by Dr. Ashton Grabiel. After four years of back and forth, the Navy turned down Greenman's request for surgery, and Grabiel advised him not to try to have it done on his own. Yeah, Greenman is no longer living, but people who knew him have talked about this as, like, an indication of how dedicated he was to this research and its success. We will be getting to more about what exactly the researchers were hoping to learn through all of this, but when this work started, people did already know that the ear was involved in the sense of balance and equilibrium. In 1824, French neurologist Marie-Jean-Pierre Florent cut the semicircular canals of pigeons. Afterwards, the pigeons could still hear, but they started moving their heads in unusual ways. He concluded that the semicircular canals were connected to the pigeon's sense of balance and that this disruption to that sense was causing these unusual head movements. 
This was the first published research to really suggest a connection between balance and the inner ear. In 1861, French physician Prosper Meunier described a disorder involving things like vertigo, pressure and ringing in the ears, and hearing loss, and he connected all of that to the inner ear. This collection of symptoms is still known as Meunier's disease today. Meunier also described a post-mortem exam that revealed an inner ear hemorrhage in a patient who had experienced vertigo. By a little later in the 19th century, doctors had also started connecting the inner ear to motion sickness. In 1881, a group of doctors published an article called The Pathology of Seasickness in the Lancet. This article said in part, quote, our bodies are endowed with what may be termed a supplementary special sense, quite independent of, but at the same time, in the closest alliance with our other special senses, the function of which is to determine the position of the head in space and to govern and direct the aestheticokinetic mechanism by which is maintained the equilibrium of the body, this faculty of equilibrium appears to be more or less connected with the cerebellum, the optic lobes, and possibly with other parts of the nervous organization. But beyond doubt, its principal seat is in the semicircular canals of the internal ear, which may, for practical purposes, be regarded as the organs of equilibration. While this paper definitely didn't have everything about motion sickness, right? And in fact, it's not entirely understood even today. It did correctly note that the inner ear was involved. It also noted a parallel between motion sickness and labyrinthine vertigo, or a sense of dizziness brought on by a disturbance in the pressure inside the labyrinth of the ear. One of the first people to publish research on a connection between deafness and immunity to dizziness was Dr. William James of Cambridge, Massachusetts, whose paper, The Sense of Dizziness in Deaf Mutes, appeared in the American Journal of Otology in 1882. According to James, at that point, it was already well established that the semicircular canals were not organs of hearing, but they, quote, serve to convey to us the feeling of movement of our head through space, a feeling which, when very intensely excited, passes into that of vertigo or dizziness. James suggested that schools for the deaf could be a place to study whether deaf people were more likely to be immune to dizziness. James examined some people himself, and he also relied on reports from his colleagues. Altogether, they examined 519 deaf people, basically by having them spin around with their head in a variety of positions. They found 186 of their subjects were totally immune to dizziness, and 134 became only slightly dizzy. The other 199 did become dizzy, and a couple of them even seemed unusually susceptible to dizziness. James also compared this to 200 hearing students and instructors at Harvard College and found only one among that group who did not experience dizziness. I really love the idea of just making a whole bunch of Harvard people spin around. <laughs> <laughs> now tilt your head to the right. Keep spinning. Keep spinning. Yep. <laughs> Of course, James would not have been the first person to observe that many deaf people were immune to dizziness. The first people to make that observation would have been deaf people themselves. But this was the result that he expected from his research. 
He noted that although more research was needed, his results backed up the idea that the semicircular canals were organs of balance rather than of hearing, and that whether a deaf person was immune to dizziness depended on whether the cause of their deafness had affected their semicircular canals as well. James also grasped that other factors might also affect a person's equilibrium, like what they could see and their perception of gravity. He asked 33 people who either did not get dizzy or got only slightly dizzy to dive underwater with their eyes closed. He expected them to report that this was very disorienting and that they couldn't tell up from down or find their way to the surface unless they opened their eyes. But that was true of only 15 out of the 33 people. Yeah, that's still a significant number, but it wasn't as across the board as he might have thought it would be. Researchers kept studying the connections among hearing and balance and dizziness and motion sickness in the decades that followed. For example, in 1929, Arna axen published experimental studies of the eliciting mechanism of seasickness. He found that dogs became motion sick if they were hoisted up and down by a crane, but then they seemed immune to that after having their labyrinths removed. Other people built on this research, eventually bringing us to the 1950s and the research that involved the Gallaudet 11. We're going to talk more about that after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. (laughs) 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. The Gallaudet 11 were part of the Vestibular Research Program. This was a joint project between NASA and the U.S. Naval Aviation Medical Center in Pensacola, Florida. Now that's known as the Naval Aerospace Medical Institute. Since most of the Gallaudet recruits were college students and professors, some of them were grad students, most of this work took place during their summer or winter breaks. They got a per diem to cover their expenses. But the Gallaudet 11 weren't actually the first people to be part of this research. We mentioned Robert Greenman earlier, but before him, there was Pauline Hicks. Robert Greenman's letters suggest that she was, quote, the original Pensacola guinea pig, and that both of them were involved in research in Pensacola in the early 1950s. As we mentioned earlier, this research was led by Dr. Ashton Grabiol. He had originally trained as a cardiologist before joining the Naval Aviation Medical Center during World War II to study how factors like fatigue and cardiovascular health affected military pilots. This eventually grew into research connected to the space program and how humans could react and adapt to space travel. Greenman's early time in NASA's research included spending days at a stretch in a slowly rotating room and carrying out various tasks that were meant to measure how he was adapting to that continual rotation. Some of them were things like throwing darts. One of them was a thing that involved setting a series of dials to the correct positions, and he had to reach, like he had to reach way behind him and way down and way over to the side. And as a person who was, is like, I'm prone to motion sickness, 
The idea of doing all that head movements in a slowly rotating room, I felt gross just <laughs> thinking about it. Um, this was not an issue for Greenman at all, though. Sometimes he was used as a control in experiments on men who had working vestibular systems because they often became very motion sick over the course of the experiment, and he did not. His immunity to motion sickness also meant that sometimes he was the person administering the tests to the other subjects in the room, doing everything from recording how well they threw those darts to administering their electrocardiograms. During these early years of the research, Greenman also spent time in the human disorientation device, which could move a person around a horizontal or vertical axis or both simultaneously. In 1960, Greenman and Hicks were flown to New York City, where they made repeated trips on the express elevator at the Empire State Building. That sounds so fun. (laughs) To me. (laughs) I would also feel gross. Uh, In 1961, Graybill and a team of researchers went to Gallaudet to try to recruit more participants for the vestibular research program. Greenman was a Gallaudet alumnus, and this may have been at his suggestion, but since Gallaudet was the only university for the deaf, it also would have been a logical place to recruit a group of adult men without working vestibular systems. They also, they needed people who could communicate with researchers, and so picking people who had some college education uh, or a college degree was another important part of this. Researchers started with a group of about 100 men, both students and faculty, who had become deaf after having meningitis as children. Then they conducted tests to confirm which of them had functioning vestibular systems. Research reports described the people who did not as having a labyrinthine defect, and sometimes described the people as labyrinthine defectives. This is a term that still shows up in research, uh, but for the purpose of this episode, we're going to stick to calling the two groups of participants deaf and hearing. Yeah, calling somebody a defective is not great. Just, just kind of get your um, your yuck response up, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, two of the surviving members gave an oral history review in, in 2020 that we'll mention again at the end of the show. Uh, and one of them was like, couldn't they have found a better word? That just sounds sounds kind of insulting. Uh, these tests also, they could be unpleasant. One of them is called the caloric stimulation or caloric reflex test. This involves irrigating a person's ear canal with warm or cold water. And if a person's vestibular system and other parts of the ear anatomy are working, even a minor change in the temperature of the water can cause involuntary eye movements called nystagmus, as well as a feeling of motion sickness or vertigo. If none of that happens, it's an indication that these organs are not working. The water used in these tests could be extremely cold. They were just, they were trying to verify that people had no vestibular function at all. And so they would go to way more extreme temperatures than a medical test today might. Uh, And some of the participants described that water as just horribly painful. Yeah, this test sounds awful to me. That's like the one where all of my anxiety goes, no, 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 don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, I would say, People I know who have had to have this test for whatever reason have described it as pretty unpleasant, but like the, typically in most medical tests today, they're not using water that's as cold right. as they were using in this screening process. 
Grabiel eventually selected a group of 10 men who met the research criteria. Harold Domick, Baron Gulak, Raymond Harper, Gerald Jordan, Harry Larson, David Myers, Donald Peterson, Raymond Piper, Alvin Steele, and John Zacutney. They were between the ages of 25 and 48, and seven of them were current students. They, plus Robert Greenman, formed what has more recently become known as the Gallaudet Eleven. Another Gallaudet student, James Bisher, also participated in some tests in 1965. It also seems as though there were also other participants from time to time, including Polly Hicks, although their participation is not as well documented. The Gallaudet Eleven, as we just said, were recruited in 1961. That is the same year human beings first went into space. So a lot was still totally unknown about how space travel would affect the human body and how the human body would adapt to being in space. One thing that seemed really certain was that people were likely to experience motion sickness during space travel and motion sickness in space could present a really serious problem, both from being ill and from being able to do your job in a situation where there's not a lot of room for error. Before this point, medical science had viewed motion sickness mostly as an annoying inconvenience, but the possibility of human space travel turned it into a subject that warranted in-depth study. This work was also connected to the development of drugs to prevent motion sickness. The vestibular research program wasn't only about motion sickness, though. That same sense of equilibrium that plays a part in motion sickness also plays a part in balance and coordination. So everything from orienting the body in space to being able to reach for and press the correct button on a control panel while essentially weightless. So researchers were trying to figure out how exactly the vestibular system connected to all of that and what it took for the human body to compensate for a lack of gravitation cues or the ongoing rotation that might provide a sense of artificial gravity. In addition to these kinds of questions, the Gallaudet 11's immunity to motion sickness also meant that they could tolerate tests that most hearing people could not, and that gave NASA and the Navy a broader range of data to work with. In the words of Harry Larson, one of the Gallaudet 11, quote, we were different in a way they needed. Between 1961 and 1968, the Gallaudet 11 participated in a lot of research. They documented their subjective experiences, and researchers tested their blood and urine, monitored their blood pressure and pulse, recorded their eye movements, recorded the details of how they performed various tasks, and took other measurements. Robert Greenman's letters describe the use of threads on the eyes as part of the eye movement studies. It is not entirely clear how this was done, but it sure sounds uncomfortable. That yeah. like, makes my, my skin heave about a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not something that was uh, elucidated in any of the research reports that I read. Even though researchers had intentionally recruited a group of 11 deaf people for this research, NASA and the U.S. Naval Aviation Medical Center didn't provide sign language interpreters for them. If hearing friends or family members visited and also knew how to sign, sometimes they would interpret the researchers' instructions. Otherwise, though, researchers gave the deaf subjects brief instructions in writing, and any other communication about the test also happened in writing. 
Participants' communication with friends and family members back home also usually happened through writing. The teletypewriter, or TTY, also called a TDD, or telecommunications device for the deaf, made phone calls more accessible to deaf people, but that was not invented until 1964, when this research had been already going on for a few years. Here are some examples of the kinds of research this group was part of, starting with some that took place on airplanes. First, flight stress. Researchers knew that being on an airplane doing all kinds of wild maneuvers was stressful, and they could measure this by looking for stress hormones in people's urine after flights. But was that also true of people who didn't have a working vestibular system and didn't experience motion sickness? One experiment that looked at this question involved 17 total subjects, six who had been recruited from Gallaudet and 11 who were serving in the Navy. Researchers first tested the 11 hearing participants to make sure their vestibular systems were functioning, and then they put all 17 through a dramatic series of in-flight maneuvers. Here's how those maneuvers are described in the research report. Quote, take off and climb to 12,000 feet. 360-degree turn at 60-degree bank to left and right, 2.0 to 2.5 G. Wing over to left and right, three aileron rolls to the left, barrel roll to the left and right, three aileron rolls to the left, barrel roll to the left and right, and a split S coming out at approximately 5,000 feet at four Gs. The sequence was carried out in a continuous manner so that the aircraft was in a straight and level flight for only very short periods of time. If at the end of the first sequence the subject was ill, the aerobatics were discontinued and the pilot returned the plane to the field. If vomiting was not imminent, the pilot climbed back to 12,000 feet and repeated the same procedure. These two sequences required approximately 30 minutes. Uh, I just want to note here that a whole page of the research report detailing this is an illustration of a tiny airplane doing all of these maneuvers, and I found it incredibly charming. The airplane looks like a like a little child's drawing of an airplane almost. It looks like something that would be in a picture book, not something that would be flying in these sorts of dramatic maneuvers. <laughs> As expected, none of the deaf men reported motion sickness during the flight, and most of the hearing participants did. In a couple of cases, the flight had to be stopped because hearing participants became ill. Afterward, the researchers tested the participants' urine and found that the 11 people with working vestibular systems had much higher levels of stress hormones than the other six. But their levels of uropepsin, which is a hormone associated with digestive disorders, was the same. Researchers also tested the participants' urine on days when there was no flight just to make sure the differences they found were not from other causes. On the non-flight days, their stress hormone levels were about the same. It's just kind of ruling out that there was some digestive involvement in what was happening. Other experiments involved parabolic flights, also called zero-G flights for their brief period of perceived weightlessness. Planes used for flights like these are often called the vomit comet. 
One parabolic flight study in 1964 was meant to assess the deaf participants' susceptibility to motion sickness as compared to hearing people. The hearing people in this study were nine medical students and 10 enlisted men who had been assigned to the Naval School of Aviation Medicine as research subjects. Unsurprisingly, based on what was already known at the time, the six members of the Gallaudet 11 who participated experienced no motion sickness and also seemed to genuinely enjoy the flight. Well over half of the hearing subjects experienced some degree of motion sickness, with the students' reactions seeming to be more extreme than the enlisted men's. By this point in the space race, human beings had been in orbit around the Earth, and some of them had reported feeling motion sickness, while others had not. And so that was something researchers were trying to understand through experiments like this one. Like, why did some people feel bad and other people were fine? Researchers concluded that this was related to vestibular function, but also that some people with functioning vestibular systems are more resistant to motion sickness, or they can adapt to repeated exposure, uh, like the enlisted men who had been in those kinds of movement situations <laughs> more often uh, ha- had more resistance to it. And we're going to get to some research that did not involve airplanes after we first take another quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Earlier in the episode, we mentioned that Robert Greenman had spent days in a slow-rotating room as part of all of this research. Other members of the Gallaudet 11 did this as well. And so for a little bit more detail about what this was about, as the name suggests, the Pensacola Slow Rotation Room is an enclosed room that rotates around an axis. The speed of that can vary based on the experiment that's going on, including changing over the course of the experiment. Research in this room could help predict how astronauts would adapt to a continually moving environment, including if rotating platforms are being used to simulate gravity in a space station. The Gallaudet 11's work in the slow rotation room helped researchers understand how the vestibular system was connected to all of this. In one experiment, four deaf subjects and four hearing subjects each spent 12 consecutive days living in the rotation room, with it rotating at 10 revolutions per minute. The four deaf subjects had been recruited from Gallaudet, and the four hearing subjects were recent Naval Academy graduates who were waiting to receive assignments as student aviators. This is a windowless room, and it was outfitted with everything that participants would need to live, including toilets and showers, a kitchen, and seating areas. They slept with their heads toward the center of the room, and the room stopped only to allow researchers to enter to run tests or to drop off supplies at the start of the day. Anytime the room was stopped, the participants had to hold still. They didn't want to interrupt or affect their body's acclimation to the room. 
In this particular experiment, participants had their balance tested by walking heel to toe on a rail, like a balance beam, and they also stood heel of one foot to toe of the other with their arms folded over their chests. They did this standing test with their eyes open and with their eyes closed. Although the deaf participants in this experiment were immune to the motion sickness that could make it really unpleasant for hearing participants, these particular tasks were inherently challenging for them. Since their vestibular systems weren't providing the feedback to help them keep their balance, many of them had trouble. This is the case with a lot of people who have vestibular issues. This was especially true when they had their eyes closed, since their bodies had adapted to using visual cues to help them maintain their balance. So this experiment was exploring the differences in how people adapted to the rotating room depending on the state of their vestibular system. It also raised some questions about how other proprioceptive systems in the body might be involved in balance. One of the most dramatic experiments involving the Gallaudet 11 took place at sea in 1964. Participants were flown to Nova Scotia, and from there they took a ship called the MS Miquelon to the island of Saint-Pierre, about 200 miles away. The plan was to spend a few rest days on Saint-Pierre. If the trip to the island was a stormy one, they would be waiting for clear weather, and if it had been clear, they would be waiting for a storm. The MS Miquelon was a supply ship. It was a round-bottomed boat, narrow and light and shallow in the draft, and it also had no stabilization gear. In the words of the research report on this experiment, quote, when underway, these unusual dimensions occasioned a great deal of roll, but the ship was seaworthy. Um, that's a little asterisk that clarified what it meant by seaworthy, and it was sort of like, it's never sank. Uh, but with more detail. To add to that, this stretch of the North Atlantic between Halifax and Saint-Pierre was notoriously prone to extreme storms. And so the idea here was to take the deaf and hearing research subjects on an innately unstable boat in very choppy seas. Again, in the words of the research report, quote, heavy seas are routine during the winter months, and on some crossings, even the ship's crew have reported seasickness. The trip out was a calm one, so they waited for a storm on the way back. The researchers' hypothesis was that in these conditions, 100% of the 20 hearing test subjects on the ship would experience motion sickness, but none of the 10 deaf subjects would. On the trip back, none of the 10 deaf men became motion sick, although one did report feeling a little gassy, and another reported a, quote, constriction in the throat and slight nausea that the researchers determined was not motion-related. Of the 20 hearing participants, 15 threw up, and five had moderate or severe malaise. Nine of these men had also been described as highly resistant to motion sickness based on their backgrounds. Two of them were senior flight surgeons, Two had retired from the Navy, three were regular research subjects in vestibular studies, and one had been an experimenter in the slow rotation room. In interviews given in more recent years, members of the Gallaudet 11 have described this as an adventure in which they were hanging out and playing cards and eating while the hearing participants were ill. Um, one of them did note that the cards kept falling off the table because the role of the ship was so much... Baron Gulak described the hearing participants getting sicker when they saw that the deaf participants were eating. 
But as sort of jovial as that sounds, this was also an ordeal. It was winter, and there was frozen spray all over the exterior of the ship. As the researchers described it, quote, the sea condition was very rough. Waves were estimated at 40 feet, and these produced an estimated roll of 40-plus degrees. The captain was requested to rate the sea state on a 10-point scale, using the first trip as 1, the mildest, and to consider 10 the most severe in his experience. This trip was assigned 7. According to the researchers, at some points, all of the deaf participants and most of the hearing participants reported being anxious or afraid. Initially, this experiment was meant to look at some basic questions beyond just, did people get seasick or not? But as it was described in the research report, quote, measurement of cardiovascular changes, specifically orthostatic hypotension, were intended but were not done because the experimenters became incapacitated. The linear and angular accelerations of the craft were also to be measured at certain intervals, and these experimenters, too, became incapacitated. So in addition to all the hearing subjects of this research, the experimenters themselves also having a lot of motion sickness. The researchers did, however, conclude that even though it can seem like anxiety has triggered a person's motion sickness, it didn't appear that anxiety by itself was enough because all of the deaf participants reported feeling anxious, but none of them became seasick. These are just a few examples of the types of experiments that the Gallaudet 11 were part of over the course of about a decade. NASA hosted a whole series of symposia on the role of vestibular organs in space starting in 1965, where researchers from around the world presented this and other research. And the researchers seem to have viewed the Gallaudet 11's participation as special and appreciated. In every research report that Tracy read, the researchers thanked the, quote, labyrinthine defective participants, but medical students, enlisted personnel, and other hearing participants did not receive similar thanks. The Gallaudet 11's participation in this research contributed to things like the development of anti-motion sickness drugs, spacesuit design, and the determination of safe flight parameters for spacecraft, like how many Gs could people be uh, subjected to. And it also had applications well beyond the space program. A range of illnesses and injuries can affect a person's vestibular function, as can just the process of aging. Research into things like balance and equilibrium and the vestibular system continues today, including at the Ashton Grabiel Spatial Orientation Laboratory at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. The Gallaudet 11's participation in this research was not a secret. There were various articles about it in Pensacola newspapers in the 1960s. But there hasn't really been much formal acknowledgement of it by NASA until very recently. Members of the Gallaudet 11 who have been interviewed in more recent years have talked about seeing it as a way to serve their country. For example, in an interview with the Washington Post, Baron Gulak talked about being unable to join the military because he was deaf. Deaf people still cannot enlist in the U.S. military. And deaf people also could not be astronauts. The first wave of astronaut candidates in the U.S. were all military test pilots and had to be, quote, in excellent physical condition, which were criteria that excluded deaf people. I can't read the minds of all the researchers, but based on the things that they wrote down, it doesn't seem like it ever occurred to anybody to be like, hey, it seems like 
there are some uniquely suited to space attributes of our deaf mm-hmm. research candidates. Maybe we should revisit some of these criteria. Uh, and at this point, space is still largely inaccessible to deaf people and to disabled people more generally. That has barely started to shift in more recent years, largely through disabled people's own advocacy and also through the rise of commercial space flight, sort of similar to how the shift in uh, just air travel from like a largely military experience to something that regular civilian people could be participating in led to some shifts in who could fly and who could become a pilot. Although, to be super, super clear, there's still an enormous way to go in terms of accessibility of air travel. SpaceX's Inspiration4 mission involved four civilian crew members. It was the first human spaceflight to orbit the Earth with only private citizens on board. One was Haley Arsenault, who has an internal prosthesis, essentially a prosthetic bone Arsenault is the first person with a prosthesis to go to space, and one of the candidates for that mission who wasn't ultimately selected to go was Gallaudet graduate Julia Velasquez. In 2021, the European Space Agency launched its Parastronaut Feasibility Project, which is exploring the inclusion of astronauts with a specific set of physical differences that previously would have excluded them from consideration. These are a significant difference in leg length, a height of under 130 centimeters, which is 4 feet 3 inches, and a, quote, lower limb deficiency. In other words, if one or both of a person's legs stop at the knee or at the ankle. And as we referenced at the top of the show, in October of 2021, there was a parabolic flight that had 12 disability ambassadors on board. That took place as part of Mission Astro Access, Mission Astro Access describes itself as, quote, a project dedicated to promoting disability inclusion in space by paving the way for disabled astronauts in STEM, by launching disabled scientists, veterans, students, athletes, and artists on parabolic flights with the Zero Gravity Corporation, Zero-G, as the first step in a progression toward flying a diverse range of people to space. So this flight took place on Zero Gravity Corporation's G-Force One, and its participants included deaf, blind, and low-vision people, as well as people with disabilities that affect their mobility. These weren't the first disabled people ever to go on a parabolic flight. As one example, the late Stephen Hawking, who had ALS, did a Zero-G flight in 2007. Radio Lab covered this flight in the episode that Tracy mentioned at the beginning of the show today. Reporter Andrew Leland was on the flight, and afterward, uh, Tracy saw some conversations between him and Damian Williams, who is a Ph.D. candidate whose work is focused on science, technology, and society. Williams praised Leland for his work, while also noting that he wished the episode had discussed the Gallaudet 11. And Leland replied that so much material had to be cut, but that the story of the Gallaudet 11 hurt the most. And that is what inspired her to research today's episode. Yeah, that conversation happened on Twitter. Also, Radiolab has taken more steps to make this episode. Again, it was titled The Right Stuff Accessible than I think I've ever seen, particularly in a podcast that as a whole was not something that was conceived and produced by and for disabled people. So not just a transcript, but also a Braille-ready file and a video with an ASL interpreter We do have a transcript of this episode of our show, and we will have the link to it in the episode description. 
for everybody to be able to access. Uh, Also, there are several places where you can find these men talking about their experiences in this research in their own words. Robert Greenman died in 1970, but his son donated a lot of his letters describing these experiments to Gallaudet University. Selections are printed as part of an article called Deaf Perspective, Inside View of Early Space Research, which appeared in the journal Quest, The History of Spaceflight Quarterly. Harry Larson and David Myers were also part of a presentation called Gallaudet 11, The Deaf Right Stuff at Space Center Houston, and that is available on Facebook and YouTube and Space Center Houston's website. Yeah, the two of them also recorded an oral history through the NASA Administrator's Oral History Project, and that's available through NASA as well. Uh, I found that just this morning. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, cool, more stuff. I love it. Do you also have listener mail today? I do. This is from Jennifer. Jennifer wrote, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I had planned an epic trip for my 50th birthday in 2020 to South Georgia Island. Needless to say, it was delayed over and over due to COVID-19. I finally took the trip last month, March 2022. I was standing at Peggotty Bluff with an archaeologist at Shackleton's campsite the day the Endurance was located and filmed. Now I've read Endurance and I respect Shackleton's leadership skills and luck, but I really went on this trip to see King Penguins. Of course, it was a very Shackleton-y trip. Our first stop was Gritviken, where we visited Shackleton's grave, but we also visited King Hakon Bay, Peggotty Bluff Cave Cove, where they ate the two young albatross, the waterfall Shackleton slid down, and of course, Stromness to round it out. Oh, and so many king penguins, which are high in vitamin C. If you eat penguins, you will not get scurvy, so I am told. Anyway, sending some photos and also the obligatory black cat photos of my besties, kitties, rickets, and Poe. You are one of my favorite podcasts I listen to while I'm gardening and doing other household chores. Keep it up, Jennifer, rickets, and Poe. Thank you so much. Jennifer, for these pictures and this email, I can totally understand how um, a trip that was meant to be about penguins, but also somewhere that had all this Shackleton <laughs> stuff would become very Shackleton-y. Uh, also, yes, uh, penguins are pretty high in vitamin C. A lot of meats are. You can't cook them too much, though, because that will, if you cook them too much, vitamin C will break down. So one of the ways that Uh, They were able to avoid scurvy was that they were eating like this really fresh meat that they had just hunted themselves um, and then not cooking it to death. So uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you like to get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable.